Good morning, Lake City Church. Ah, oh, boy, you guys are a lively bunch. I think you get the, I think you give you the gold star. You just were on fire this morning. That's so encouraging. How could we not be with that choir? That's amazing. Well, I, I just want to thank Pastor Jim and Mark and the elders for allowing me to share with you uh, once again today, uh, Orphan Weekend. Uh, it is a privilege to, to come to you again. And I think it's very fitting. I mean, in light of the fact that this is the last uh, time that we worship together in this place, um, it's, it's great to be able to talk about what's close to God's heart. And clearly that is the orphan, and the poor, and the widow, and clearly one of the core values here at Lake City Church. And I know some of you might have saw in the bulletin last week that uh, our family became members of Lake City last week. And uh, yeah, we're excited about that. <laughs> Only took us 15 years to make that decision. Uh, but we move very slowly, as you might imagine. Uh, but I want to warn you, for those of you taking the membership class next week, see, this is what happens to you uh, once you become a member, okay? <laughs> the next weekend you get to preach, so just be warned uh, about that uh, in advance, okay? <laughs> anyway, uh, anyway. Uh, here's a picture of my family. Uh, they're not here. They were here last night. And uh, I want to apologize. Um, I tried to find a picture with some color in it, uh, but uh, this is the best I could do. Um, this is a happy, a happy place. This is, is us up at Snoqualmie Pass on Christmas Eve day. And uh, we're at the Tube Center. Anybody uh, taking the family up to the Tube Center up there? Okay, well, this is something you should definitely do uh, because it takes no skill. <laughs> you basically plop yourself in a tube and down the hill you go. Okay, so it doesn't matter how young or old you are, you can, you can do this. And uh, so this is us Christmas Eve day. That's one of our traditions. We're all up there. And uh, for those of you who might be challenged with numbers, I have 11 uh, children, uh, nine through the blessing of adoption, uh, four grandchildren now. Just two babies came home from Ethiopia recently, my daughter and son-in-law in the picture. So I have four grandchildren and uh, really uh, am thankful to the Lord. When I look at this picture, it reminds me of how I felt on Christmas Eve day. Everything was right with the world. Snowing, looking at the snow-covered trees, uh, laughter, fun, uh, the Christmas spirit. You know, it's just like the best moment. I just remember savoring it like, I just want to stay right here in this place and, and just experience this. And I could almost pretend, I guess I could pretend that everything was right with the world. You know, goodwill toward men, peace on earth, everything, that Christmas spirit. I, the whole world is like this. But it's not true. And I want to introduce you to another family. Here's another family picture. This is a family in Ethiopia, one of the poorest places on the planet. And this family, that's their house behind them. They have 13 children. One child is severely handicapped. One has epilepsy. And this is a Muslim family. So they don't have the hope that you and I have in Christ. They don't know what Christmas is all about. They don't know that at all. They don't have any hope. And the father, he, he works as a guard uh, at a Christian compound of all places. And this family is struggling. They're hurting. It's a very different picture than when I just showed you my family. And I call this an uncomfortable contrast. This to me is an uncomfortable contrast of what my normal is and what their no normal is. And tonight, tonight, 
change, reverse. Today, as I share with you about the global orphan crisis, I really want to get to the heart of the problem. I really want us to, to dive deeper today and look at the why. Why is there a global orphan crisis? Let's get closer to the heart of the issue. Why does this exist? As I've shared with you before some troubling statistics, I just want to remind you of a few. Uh, roughly 150 million orphans worldwide. 150 million. That every day in our world, 26,000 children die as a result of preventable diseases and starvation. Every day, 26,000. That every year, 2.5 million children die from malaria, which is preventable. Every year. And I could go on with statistics, but statistics won't move us. Statistics won't move us to action. Why does it exist? Why a global orphan crisis? Well, to get closer to the answer to that, to the heart of it, is orphans exist because of the disintegration of families in large part. When the family disintegrates, you get orphans. And so if we're really going to look at the global orphan crisis, we got to look closer at the global poverty crisis because it's families in extreme poverty where we find orphans more prevalent. It's families that disintegrate and break down in extreme poverty often that we get orphans. Not always the case, but in large part the case. Today in our world today, 1.2 billion people live on less than a dollar a day. 3.9 billion people live on less than $2 a day. 60% of our world's population, 60% are in severe and extreme poverty. Six out of ten people in our world. To me, this is an uncomfortable contrast on a global level. That over half the people on this planet are struggling and suffering. With all our advances, with all our technology, with all our ingenuity, with all our ability, this is what we have today. In America, we represent 4% of the world's population, just 4%. But we have 25% of the world's resources. Again, uncomfortable contrast. The United Nations estimates it would cost $30 billion a year to feed the world's hungry. But it depends what source you use. There's a lot of different sources that have a different number. The high-end source I found shows that it would take about $160 billion to feed the world's poor. And you might be thinking, that's an impossible number. That's an impossible amount of money for us to solve that problem. But not even close. In an article called By the Numbers, How Americans Spend Their Money by Lucas Riley, he says that on average, every day, the average American spends $101. We spend it on food and transportation and clothing and house, everything. So you think, well, there's not much left over to help the world's poor. We spend collectively $10.7 trillion a year. So there's not much left. Let me give you a few statistics here. How much do you think we spend as Americans on lighting fireworks, on purchasing fireworks? Any idea? Just fireworks. A couple million. 800 million a year. Boom. Put a pile of $800 million in the sanctuary and light it on fire. 
Okay, that gets worse. How about eating Cheetos, Doritos, and Funyuns? <laughs> How many of you know what a Funyun is? Yeah, they are fun, aren't they? Get a bag of Funyuns, you got a party. Cheetos, Doritos, and Funyuns collectively. You know how much we spent on those? Billions. 4.8 billion. Almost $5 billion. How about going under the knife for aesthetic cosmetic procedures? 13.5 billion. Purchasing cosmetics. What do you think? 62 billion. Now, just so you ladies know, I'm not picking on you. Playing fantasy football. Now, I don't know what that is. How can you have fantasy football? That's weird to me. I apologize, you brothers who play that. I don't know what it is. $4.6 billion. Watching the miserable Patriots Falcons Super Bowl last year. $14.1 billion. All right, now this is really troubling, and you will remember this one, especially since we're having lunch today. Eating pizza. What do you think? A trillion. Yeah, probably. 32 billion. 32 billion dollars in pizza. And I'm a big part of that because we eat a lot of pizza in my family. 32 billion. Buying flowers. 31 billion. And this troubling one, the final one. Food that America wastes. The food that we throw away, that we don't eat, estimated at 162 billion. That's the same high-end number, basically, that I just gave you to feed the global poor. The food we throw away, 162 billion. So the point I'm trying to make here is it's not a lack of money issue. I'm not even talking about what the rest of the world could do. I'm just talking about us as Americans the, the, the extra money that we have. It's not a lack of money issue. It's not a lack of food issue. It's not a distribution issue. It's not a transportation issue. At the heart of the global orphan crisis, we need to see that it's global poverty that's creating so many orphans. But at the heart of the global poverty crisis is a selfish heart crisis. It's a crisis of the heart. It's not a, a lack of resources. We here collectively are part of the richest church in the history of Christianity, the American church. It's not a lack of resources. Not a lack. And we have to be confronted with that uncomfortable truth and contrast that we as American Christians, how do we view the world's poor? Are they on our hearts? Is the orphan, the widow, the global poor, are they, is it matter to us? Are we willing to do something about it when we're confronted with their struggle, when they're suffering, with their disease, with their death and dying, with their starvation, with their lack of water? When we're confronted with the truth of this, what is our response? Clearly, we see from the scriptures the heart of our Father. Clearly, throughout the scriptures, you know this, throughout the scriptures, God speaks about his heart for the poor, the broken the least of these. In Psalm 68, father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. Psalm 10, but do you see? For you know mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. 
Exodus 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. We can mistreat people by ignoring them in their suffering. We can mistreat them. Are the poor, the widow, and the orphan on God's heart? Absolutely. Absolutely they are. God says, he personally, that they're close to his heart, that he is a father to the fatherless, that he hears them, that he sees them, that he wants to respond to them. How does he do that in our world? Does God care about four billion people struggling today? Does he care about the other 60% outside of our walls? Does he care? Is it on his heart? Absolutely. Think of the cries of Four billion people crying out for help. And God hears them. Let's look at the heart of the Son. When Jesus walked this earth, he revealed the heart of the Father, the heart of God in his earthly ministry. In Luke chapter 4, it says, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on Sabbath day. And he stood up and read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus reading from Isaiah chapter 61, messianic prophecy envisioning the future Messiah bringing true and complete salvation and deliverance, what he came to bring. In many ways, this is like Jesus' mission statement. And we can see the spiritual truth and application of Isaiah 61 in bringing salvation and deliverance for the spiritually poor, blind, captive, oppressed. But we also see in Jesus' earthly ministry the very personal and very practical ways in which he ministered to people. He demonstrated that he cared for the whole person. This is what Richard Stearns, president of World Vision, says in his book, The Whole Gospel. That Jesus cared for the whole person to bring healing and deliverance. Did he really care about that person? Did he care about the person who was abused, afflicted, harassed, hurting, abandoned, hungry? Absolutely, we see that he did as he ministered on earth. Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. The global poor are harassed and they are helpless. They are harassed by the monster of poverty, by the wickedness of disease and suffering. Jesus, preaching the gospel and healing every affliction and disease. Jesus revealed the heart of God by caring for the whole person. Is he still doing it today? Anybody here testify that Jesus is still doing a work like that today in your life, in my life, a healing, a work of healing, of deliverance? Absolutely. He's doing it, and he often does it through his church. He has a church that is empowered, that is equipped, that is enabled to go forth and solve 
these issues that seem impossible, but not impossible with God and through his church of global poverty, the global orphan crisis, one person, one family at a time. We've looked at God's heart. We've looked at the Father. We've looked at the Son. What about our hearts, though? What is our hearts? What is our hearts response? Let's look at the heart of true worship. The heart of true worship. Look at Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah 58 is a very sobering passage of Scripture. It's troubling. Written in the 7th century B.C. to God's people in captivity. At this time, they were conquered by the Assyrians and they were under punishment. They're under punishment for their unfaithfulness and idolatry. And that at this time, God's people were just going through the, the motions. They were big in the externals, in the outward expression of their religious life. It was big in the externals, and God has a word to say about that. Look at Isaiah 58, 1 through 3. Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression. To the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As if they were a nation that did righteousness. And did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments and delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? They're irritated at God. Because he's not responding to them. They're jumping through all kinds of spiritual hoops. And they're like, God, where are you? It appears when you read that, that they're doing all the right things. They're, they're humbling themselves. They're fasting. They're praying. They're doing all kinds of things. But what does God have to say? God responds to them in chapter four, uh, uh, verses 4 and 5. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? He calls them out for who they are. Shallow. Imposters insincere. He sees their heart. He sees right through it. He's not impressed and he's not pleased. And he goes on to define what true worship, true sacrifice, true fasting is. Look at verse 6 and 7. Is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh? This is a very different definition that God is giving them than what they were trying to define. This is the definition of true worship and true fasting. You see, true fasting in God's eyes brings freedom and deliverance. It feeds the poor. It breaks the chains. It breaks the yoke. 60% of our world is under the yoke of oppression, under the yoke of poverty. It breaks the bondage. It clothes the naked. It welcomes the lonely and the homeless. True fasting involves serving others in very personal and very practical ways, meeting physical needs. It involves loving our neighbor as 
ourselves. This is what pleases God. He says, you want to serve me? Serve others. You want to express your love to me? Express your love to others. You want to sacrifice to me? Sacrifice to others. It's a troubling passage of scripture. It should serve as a reminder to us, but also as a warning to challenge us as believers today. And how do we define service? How do we define sacrifice? How do we define worship? Is it pleasing to God? Because God's definition has not changed. It's the same God. Same definition applies to us. And as disciples, we have to challenge ourselves and say, is that true in our lives? The heart of a true disciple I've asked myself that question from time to time in my life. Am I a true disciple? Do I even know what's going on? Is my heart aligned with God's heart? My service aligned with his heart? I'll never forget hearing her story. It was a couple years ago and I was in Ethiopia again and uh, she uh, was a street beggar. And often in Ethiopia and other poor parts of the world you see Street bakers on the side, they have a baby on their back, and, and very, very common. And she was attacked, and she was raped, and she came, became pregnant with a baby. And when I met her, she was living kind of on the side of this little shack and this little lean-to, kind of like a pit. And I'll never forget hearing her story and then walking in to where she lived, this pit. Literally, it was just this tiny little area. The smells, the dirt, the stench, the it just was repulsive to me. I could barely go in there. I was everything to, in my sanitized life to try to go in there. It was difficult. But when I was in there, it happened again like it's happened before. He was in there. There he was, once again, showing up. The presence of Christ was so powerful. I wish I could say I experienced this more often than I do. But he was so present and so powerful, it absolutely overwhelmed me. And as I was in there, I remember standing up, and in that dark little room, I, I just said, I'm not even a Christian if I, and I couldn't even finish the this, this sentence. I was just weeping, I was just broken over the presence of the Lord. And, and I just, for that moment, sensed his heart, his heart for her, this woman. And just collectively, his heart for the broken, the hurting. And I was weeping over that, and I was weeping over my own shallowness, my own wrong values and priorities. I'm deeply convicted. It's happened to me multiple times. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And, and I was just challenged by God's presence and his spirit and his word about what true discipleship means in that place. And it just reminded me that, you know, true disciples, they, they go where Jesus goes. They, they serve how he serves. They, their heart beats like his heart beats. They love as he loved. And part of our challenge as American Christians, us four percenters in this country, is that we have the luxury, I'll use that word luxury, to ignore it if we want. We can be occupied with all kinds of other things, and because of geography and everything, we can just 
turn out the noise of, of the poor. It's, we don't want to deal with that. So, so we can just turn away from that. And, but the truth is, God, there's no excuse. We don't have an excuse. Because our neighbor, a neighbor is not defined by how close they are to your doorstep. That's not how Jesus defines a neighbor. A neighbor is not defined by geography or, or status. A neighbor is not defined by culture. That's not how Jesus defines our neighbor. In James chapter 2, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. It's dead. 1 John chapter 3, by this we know the love of God, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. A true disciple shows love not only in words, but actions. A true disciple is identified not just by what they say, but what they do. My whole message could just be all wrapped up and conveyed if I could just take you guys into that little pit. You just, I, if I didn't say anything, but just took you there, you'd, you'd experience it. Well, guess what? Good news. You can go. We have chartered a plane. Uh, it's part of the Transform Initiative. We've chartered a plane, okay? Uh, part of the money you gave to the building campaign is going... No, I'm kidding. On October, September 28th through October 7th, we have our next trip coming up. We have people already signed up to go. What more do you want? Look, I got, I got Kelsey right there, right on the flyer. See that? Hey, isn't that great? Huh? That should motivate you to come along. But we're going in October. And I believe there's somebody here, maybe a couple, there's somebody here God is going to call right from this service, I believe it, to go on that trip. And I'd love you to go. And my hope is that your life will be messed up. That's my hope. That you'll never be the same. Because that's what happened to me in March of 2009. I had no idea there was any global crisis, global poverty. I had no idea about any of that. I got invited to go. I went. I didn't want to go. It's inconvenient. I will tell you this. There's nothing convenient about going to Ethiopia. There's nothing convenient. You got to get a bunch of shots. You might get sick. You might get run over. I don't know what, but it's not an easy place to go. So there's your disclaimer. Uh, I'm trying to talk you out of going. But if God calls you to go, you're going to go anyway. So just don't, you can fight him about it. Uh, but I'll tell you, going there can change your life. And it doesn't have to be Ethiopia. It can be anywhere where God takes you out of your comfort zone. So that first trip I went, just opened my eyes. And the next trip, we adopted a few children. And each time I went, God's kind of expanded my uh, view of this global crisis, this global poverty crisis, and, um, and gave me a vision. Many of you, you, I've shared this with you before. He gave me a vision about swimming upstream to get to the family before they disintegrate. And in March of 2012, we, 
We started Mission 127, founded on James 127, to care for widows and orphans in their distress. And it's all about preventing orphans by preserving and empowering families. The church is doing a lot of work in orphan care. Church is doing a lot of work in adoption, and that's wonderful. And I pray we continue. But very little is even still being done to prevent orphans by getting upstream of the crisis. And so that's what we do. And at Mission 127, we try to take families through three steps of a process. Number one, we embrace them. We embrace them with the love of Jesus Christ through the church. And so how we do that is we find sponsors in the U.S. that will adopt a family. And for $50 a month, you adopt a family. We send 100% of that to Ethiopia to care for your family, 100%. And that's, that's step one. Number two, we equip that family. So we're, we, we try to bring them to stability. The families that come into our program, they are literally disintegrating. Sadly, because poverty is so extreme over there, you have to be at that place where you're not going to make it if somebody doesn't intervene. It's really a rescue. And so we bring them in, and then we stabilize them in the equipping phase. Food, medicine, shelter, stabilize. And then step three, after about six, eight months into the process, then we try to empower. And we invest an interest-free microloan in those families. They pay it back over two years, and then they graduate from our program. So it's all about short-term support for long-term transformation and stability. We're about 320-some families in the program today, and uh, it's growing. Uh, this year, we've had 24 families graduate from the program. They're done. They're out. Graduated. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Thank you very much. It's, it's hard work. It's hard work to get them there. But we have 24. They don't need support anymore. And some of you, maybe your family's graduated, and we've let you know that. And so we're excited about that. And I just want to thank Lake City for partnering with us in that. Many of you have adopted a family or two, and um, you're changing lives. You're absolutely making an impact. So I want to thank you uh, very much for that. Well, since I can't take you to Ethiopia, real quickly I want to show you a couple of families in the process. Here's the first family here. Here is a grandmother. We call her Grandma Garia. Uh, this morning she was a waiting family. Somebody adopted in the last service so she's going to find out this week that uh, somebody has answered her prayers she's a widow her husband died 13 years ago her daughter died 5 years ago and left her to care with these, for these 4 beautiful children so here you have a widow caring for orphans and it's a very typical type of family but she's going to get good news somebody answered her prayer this week so I'm very excited about that but we have many more waiting families so come see me or or our uh, sponsor care coordinator, Morgan, uh, at our table and adopt one if you want to. Equip. Next phase is equip. Introduce here is Waganish. Here's Waganish. Okay, when I met her back in 2011, she was near death. Probably didn't weigh more than 50 pounds, I'd say. She has tuberculosis and HIV. Very prevalent over there. And she had taken her son and given her son to another family because she's getting ready to die. One of you adopted her. You adopted her. And we were able to provide her with the drugs, the HIV drugs, the extra nutrition, the medicine, the shelter, everything. And the next year, I took this picture, a year later, and she was with her son. She was in the church. She was healthy, happy, and the case manager said, Lazarus, 
She is Lazarus. She's been raised from the dead. So I want to encourage each one of you today. When I talk about global crisis, global orphan crisis, global poverty, look, God is going to ask each one of us to do something. You can literally change the world. Her world's changed. You can change the world. It doesn't take much if each of us do something. You can make the world of a difference in the life of one person. Next is empowerment. Here is Etebez. Etebez, I wish you could meet her. She's just a radiant, uh, amazing lady. And she's graduated from our ministry, uh, from our program this year. And I'm going to read her testimony to you in her own words at her graduation. I would like to send my thanks and gratefulness to my sponsoring family as it is. You all know how my and my family's life was very hard before IGA, microloan. I was struggling to win bread for me and my child by working in a small trade with very minimal capital. It is a miracle to get to the level I have now reached, especially having my own small business, making profit, acquiring the better skill, being a role model for others, and leave the place for those who are lined up behind me waiting for the loan to do a business. The additional gift that is three months support I received on my graduation is more blessing. It motivated me. Let God bless you. You are my real family. There's a life that was changed. Made a difference. The conclusion, the heart of the global poverty crisis, the global orphan crisis, it's, it's a matter of the heart. It is. It's a heart issue. And we as Christians, let's not choose to just turn away from it and be distracted by the noise of our own world and our own culture. Let's, let's choose to do something to respond as the American church to the crisis. We can do something. You've seen it. We can make a difference. And this starts by turning to God and getting on our knees and asking him to do a work in our hearts. Start right there with our hearts you and I can choose to move and to act. We can choose to do that because we have the awareness. We are aware that there are these issues in the world. We have access. We can get there. We can get there to help them. And we have the ability. We have the resources. We have the ability to make a difference in the lives of these people. God might not be calling you to Ethiopia. He might be calling you here. But he's calling each of us to do something somewhere for someone Next steps, let's just start with prayer. We need to pray and ask God, work in my heart, work in this heart, change my heart. Seek God for how he would have you serve the orphan and the poor. He'll show you, he'll show you specific ways to do it. Come to Ethiopia in October, come on. I'd love to have you come along. Get connected to the Lake City's Father's Heart Ministry. Pastor Mark, Kelsey, amazing resources there to get you connected uh, to help you, to partner with you, whether it's adoption, foster care, orphan care, they're a great help. Um, maybe adopt a waiting family today. Come on down and see us. I have waiting families. I'd love you to leave with one. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you uh, care for the poor, the widow, and the orphan. They are on your heart. You hear their cry. You hear uh, their hurt. And Lord you have an empowered church here in this world that you want to utilize and use to minister in very personal and practical ways. 
Lord, I pray that you'd very specifically show each one of us how we can respond and engage uh, and be your hands and feet. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.